Welcome back to the Hard Parking Podcast. This is your host, Jay Finning. On the last episode, I talked about discovering some old VHS, and I sent them off to a very nice person on Instagram, Dorian, and he is mailing them back to me, so I can't wait to get them. But it made me think about something. Looking at those old tapes took me back to a time, and my guest that's coming up, Matt, the moderator, DeAndrea, actually waiting on him to call right now, but we're about the same age, and it reminded me of there was a time where you'd have to go to Blockbuster and you'd want to rent a movie, but you had to get there early so that they had your movie. Or you rented a video game, like if you're doing a sleepover with a friend, you rent the game, you take it home, and you try to beat it in the two or three days that you have it. So you'd stay up all night playing video games, sleepovers, you'd order pizza, and that's what we did. Maybe you play with G.I. Joe's, maybe you play with Transformers. But having kids now and watching them grow up, now my son wasn't like this. Him and his friends would hang out and play video games and do the, the typical things. But my daughter, people would come over, whether it's her cousin or her friends from school, and all they did was sit on their phones, laugh and giggle, and show each other what the other person was looking at on their phone the whole time. It wasn't watch a movie. It wasn't, hey, can you take us to the roller skate rink? Can you take us bowling? It wasn't really any of that. And I guess that's just where we are today. And I sound so old right now. I don't even know what would keep me busy. I guess YouTube. I had my nephew over here from Michigan a couple months ago. I came downstairs in the morning, made him some cereal. I mean, he's, or poured him some cereal, I guess. He's, I don't remember how old he is, maybe nine. But I said, what do you want to watch? So we started going through the TV. He goes, I want to watch YouTube. Piqued my interest. I was like, YouTube, what do you want to see on YouTube? So we changed to a channel and all the channel was, was some guy playing video games. And it wasn't even a how-to. It was a super simple game. Phone call coming in. This could be Matt DeAndrea. Hello. Let's turn you on. Oh, I don't that I didn't mean that in that sense. This Jay, man, what are you doing? How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing really good. So let's just jump into it. I have a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. Time permitting on your end. Again, thanks for carving out the time. We're joined by uh, Matt DeAndrea, co-host of CarCast with Adam Carolla and Bill Goldberg and Shift and Share Podcast, Chassis.com. So you were born out here. Did you grow up here or did you move away early? I, I grew up in Arizona. Is that where you are? Yeah, in I'm in Phoenix. Right? Well, I'm in Gilbert. Oh, there's a shop out there in that area that I want to go see. <laughs> now that you mentioned it, the guy does uh, some uh, four-link conversion on truck suspension. I got to get out in that area. Um, I I was born in Arizona and uh, I moved around a bit in Arizona and California and Florida, but I've been out in California for I don't know, 20, 20 something years. I came out here pr- pretty early, like almost right after high school. I, I came back out to California. Right. So other than me, do you have any other family out here? I do. Yeah. I get out to Arizona quite often. Uh, uh, I got parents out there, brother out there, um, some friends out there for sure. Uh, so I get out there a few times a year, mostly uh, for Barrett Jackson auction and, and car sure. week out there and Gooding and RM. And, and uh, so, you know, my, my mom, she always sort of plans the schedule. She's like, all right, so you're going to come out for Thanksgiving and Christmas and Bear Jackson. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that, that pretty much sums it up. Everything's been destroyed this year. We could talk about that in a few moments. Also, let me know what the name of that shop is. I can drive by. I can case the joint, make sure it's legit <laughs> and give you an update. Uh, yeah, uh, I got I got to look it up. I think it might be like Fat Man Fabrications. I think they do. Uh, a lot of, um, I think they're, they're doing some full chassis and some truck stuff and, 
and and whatnot. And uh, you, you know about my truck. You've seen my 95 Ford Lightning. Absolutely. And yep. uh, I'm, I'm getting some mods and stuff done to it. Now, I, I do some work on it, and then I bring it back and talk about it on the show and talk about like what I liked about it, and then I bring it back and do a little bit more. I wanted it to be an ongoing project rather than, you know, like my other car, my Cobra, kind of went in the garage and been building it for years. And then, you know, timing in life kind of gets away, especially when you're doing it all yourself. Uh, so there hasn't been like a, a finale for that car yet. And it's been years in the making. And I understand that's a little frustrating, especially for everybody like listening to the podcast and following on social media. So the truck I wanted to do differently. I wanted to work on it, get it on the road, do some of it myself, but not all of it. The Cobra, I pretty much built entirely my myself. Anyway, those guys out there in, in Arizona, I think they're in your area. They look like they did some good stuff. They got a good four-link conversion for that truck, which doesn't uh, require a ton of modifications. And I'm trying to develop a coilover suspension for that truck, but also that doesn't require completely changing the front I-beam suspension because I've already invested some money and stuff in the I-beam suspension. And also, I'm trying to do some mods on all of these cars that <laughs> look, maybe – some of the mods are super over the top and some of them aren't. And the idea is to just, you know, other Mustang guys, other truck guys out there go, oh, you know, I like what you did there or that's a cool idea. And, you know, you didn't completely cut the frame in half and start over and do like a Mustang 2 suspension or something. And like trying to find some interesting ways to better the vehicle without uh, you, know, you know, without starting from scratch, I guess is what I'm sure. saying. Like without starting with like a, just a complete chassis and building on top of that, which is a good way to go. But, you know, having somebody build you a chassis and some suspension, you're at 25, 30 grand and then brakes and, and everything else. It's just like, and it's a lot of work. Uh, you know, is there stuff that you can do kind of on and off? It was the idea of this truck. So, yeah, because um, you picked that up anyway, a couple of years ago, right? It wasn't, you, you haven't had it that no, long. I don't even know if I've had it for a year. Maybe it was around this time last year. I yeah. bought it and did a bunch of work to it. And then we brought it to SEMA. It was in the Magnaflow booth at the SEMA show mm -hmm. uh, last year. The engine wasn't done, but a lot of the suspension, we got the stance right, paint, body, cosmetic, the interior, the sound system. You know, all the, the custom touches in the interior. We did uh, Alcantara headliner and full JL audio sound system and, and a bunch of stuff like that we kind of got done. Oh, and the custom wheels. We did sort of a one-off set of billet wheels that kind of mimic the original Lightning wheels. Mm -hmm. The original Lightning had 17-inch cast wheels, and they weren't directional. So <laughs> these, these sort of italicized teardrops were flowing in the wrong direction on either side. It's weird to not do a left and right side versions of the wheels when the wheels right. aren't symmetrical, right? If you did like a five-star rim, no problem. Um, so I made a custom set of uh, billet wheels, a uh, uh, Brad Fanshawe Bond Speed Wheels. He's my co-host on Shift and Steer. Uh, we took an original wheel, we scanned it, we brought it into CAD, we came up with a billet version of it. So now my wheels are 18 inch instead of 17. They are directional left and right side, and they're staggered nine inches in the front and 10 inches in the back. I, I went off on a tangent because we're talking about the. No, that's uh, fine, man. Just, totally. Just, uh, the guys out there that are doing some fab work. I haven't met the guys in person. We've just chatted on, on, on social media. They look like that's some pretty cool stuff. And uh, they have a little bit of what I want, not not everything, but a little bit. So I'm going to have to come up with something. That's what we're doing these days is we're meeting people online. 
and it's no longer it's no longer funny either. So it's like, how did you guys meet? Well, we met online. Oh, yeah, it used to be embarrassing, right? Yes. You know, like, yeah, you're like, oh, where'd you guys meet? Uh, we were on the Bumble for car guys. <laughs> we went on a we went on an online car date. <laughs> it was lovely. No, that's people because <laughs> I have some listeners that are a little younger and they're not going to understand that. But one of my best friends in Michigan. That's how we met on like HondaAcura.net or HondaAcura.com. People were like, you guys met because of your cars? And then you went to the movies? It's like, yeah, we went to yeah. go see Fast and Furious as our first mandate, I guess. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, total, total mandate. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking yeah, here and it looks like this, the Cyclone, because I, I kind of recalled it, you know, the 91, the early ones. Mm-hmm. I mean, they had kind of uh, directional wheels. Um, and I think the... Yeah. The Typhoon maybe had some similar wheels too. So it's like a very 90s. So yours are now, they're period correct, but they're bigger and better. Yes. And on lighter. my Lightning. Yeah. on on and, and lighter for sure. But also I was able to fit big brakes under there. And that was the other thing that we, we kind of did custom. Um, there's a company called Little Shop Manufacturing. They're on the East Coast or on the Southeast. And um, they custom machine billet aluminum hubs that allows us to adapt a modern day brake kit on that truck. The rear brakes were just a Willwood kit out of the catalog that we got to work. And then the front is we used their custom hub. And then I was able to put on a 14 inch two piece Willwood rotor with a six piston caliper. So I solved the braking problem <laughs> on that truck. That's a, a thing on this truck is I've done a lot of modifications on the truck, but I've retained catalytic converters. I retained the airbag. I retained the ABS brakes. I know it was very easy to get rid of some of that stuff, especially the airbag and go to an aftermarket steering wheel because uh, the steering wheel is big and it's ugly. And I just wanted to not make the truck illegal. Sure. Um, even even if I register emissions exempt in a different state, which uh, I which I actually did do, I was able to do another resident actually in Arizona. There you I, go. I have the truck registered there as a collector vehicle, and I got a registered emissions exempt. But I still wanted to keep the catalytic converters on it. Now I've got brand new, you know, cats from from Magnaflow and a full exhaust from them, and it's much better quality stuff. But I didn't want to push and start building a, a vehicle that was. It's too illegal. You know, I just wanted to be safe and legal and, and all that stuff. So I guess that's important. Yeah. You know, I, I guess I, I may do another car. Um, my Cobra is kind of the same way. I, I retain the airbag and stuff and I wrap the steering wheel and it, it's got kind of a period correct look. That was the other thing is I wanted to do period correct modifications. Um, so this truck has, it has the original lightning engine in it now and I'm switching it out to an all aluminum dart, a four bolt block, uh, the aluminum. 427. Yeah. I'm doing the 427 aluminum heads, aluminum block. It's being completely built up for high boost. Um, but if I go to an aftermarket intake, when you open the hood, you lose a little bit of that original flare. You don't sure. see that lightning tubular intake. So I, uh, uh, I have the truck, like I said, I have the truck now and I'm driving it. It's in the shop getting a little bit of work done, but I but I, I drive it in between. So I bought another original Ford Lightning intake manifold and I researched to a couple of shops that uh, could do a pretty good job in porting these things and cutting and welding and just doing a lot of work on the intake to get them to flow as much as possible. It'll always be the limitation on that engine. 
but I wanted to get it as much as I could. And uh, so they're working on it now. Unfortunately, <laughs> the good news is I think the shop is really good. They're doing a good job. They're coming back with some pretty good flow numbers. The bad news is, is that it's pretty much one guy over there and he's mm. been working on this intake for like eight months. <laughs> and You got to be careful, man. Those one guy shops, sometimes they're really good at, I mean. I, I, I get it, you know, but uh, now I guess the saving grace is everything has sort of been delayed and uh, we've right. got other bigger things to worry about. I know we're talking yes. about a car podcast, sort of a, a break from reality, if you will, but uh, uh, everything's sort of been on hold. So it's not like I'm freaking out about it. It's not that big of a deal. It's just an intake manifold, but, but yeah, it, it has been a long process. Like it was, it was a long process before 2020, right. Where things started to go to hell. So, uh, I'm helping a few of my NSX guys out with some parts from a, from a part maker in California. And that's first thing is as soon as they place these orders, all these restrictions hit, get kicked out of their shops, have to go home, can only run skeleton crews, you know, late yeah. at night, like a speakeasy for car shops, basically. And fortunately, both guys have received their parts, but people have to understand that 40 million people are out of jobs. I'm one of them. And getting parts just, it's a slower process if these places haven't completely folded. It is, but it's the same for everybody. So, yes. uh, you know, all, all of the manufacturers and stuff, like when you do set a debut goals and timelines for your vehicles, you know, uh, Syracuse Nationals, Roadster Show, SEMA Show, anything like that. I think we have some flexibility with that. You know, I've been already, I've been talking to several of the aftermarket manufacturers, companies that we work with all the time in the space. And we're now starting to talk about, you know, the SEMA show, like what's going to happen? How are they going to do things? And, you know, the show is going to happen. They're not doing, a lot of the companies on their own are choosing not to do their typical hospitality suites. So there's no food and drink, you know, sort of buffet style that you, you can go and grab. And yeah, not, um, not everybody is Ford who basically takes up the North side of the entire North hall. Yeah. You know, and there's probably going to be much fewer or zero like celebrity signings and meet and greets and photos, you know, like photos with celebrities, like all of that's probably not going to happen. You know, it's just it's just a different world. Just standing in line and shaking hands with a hundred people is just kind of a, a, a different world. So a little bit less of that. We might see uh, more cars, but we might see more cars in the development phases. A few years ago, I displayed uh, a car at SEMA, but I did like a full, just a unibody chassis with suspension and engine and transmission, but with no body, no skin on it, no dash nothing just so we can see the mechanics of it and we're starting to see more and more of that kind of stuff happening and i think at the sema show you might see that uh, I, I know it's always been a big push to debut like a really cool car there but um, i think it's fine that a lot of these cars won't be done and why not get two big rounds out of it like take it sure. there in bare metal sure. or take it there with with no sheet metal and just mechanics and engineering and the engines and de and debut it there and then bring it back next year done and painted and everything. So I think it's fine to do that. I know uh, in the past, I don't know, however many years, people would always rush to, to debut at something like SEMA and then, you know, we're devastated when they can't do it in the last minute. And then your sponsor's looking to fill the spot with a different car, one of the backup cars that they might have had, you know, um, sitting in the wings with another builder. And 
uh, it gets a little hectic. So um, I think, I don't know if this is increasing the stress for uh, companies that that present there or lessening it, but I know that we're probably not going to be doing much in the way of podcasting. We usually have uh, a podcasting stage built in the Magnaflow booth at the SEMA show, and we just won't be able to do that this year. We may come up with some other things to do there, uh, myself or Goldberg or my shift and steer guys or Adam Carolla. You know, we'll, we'll go out there and do something, but um, just probably not what we we typically have been doing. A couple of oh. things on that before we go back, because I want to touch on the podcast that you're doing with all the guys and then yeah. you in general. Um, I had a thought as you were talking about SEMA. How many times have you been to SEMA with a vehicle? Um, so I've, I've been twice with a vehicle, but three vehicles. One year I brought two cars <laughs> and then one year I brought one. So last year I brought the, my the truck. truck which again, not completely done. So I hope to bring that back and, and display it a little differently. Just, you know, I'm not going to repaint it or anything. Everything looks good, but I'd like to show off the engine and some of the suspension and some of the cool stuff we're doing on it. Um, and then I think it was 2016, I brought my red Mustang Cobra, which was assembled at the time, but it was, uh, it was assembled, but didn't have all the things done to it that I wanted to do to it. So we we put a bunch of things together on that car and mocked it up. It didn't even run. So we even sh we displayed it with the hood open uh, and the supercharger, like it had a belt on it. And then the belt was just like zip tied at the bottom of the engine, you know, nice. uh, so it didn't run. And then that was also the year that I brought another 93 Cobra, but that was the shell that I brought. We brought as a suspension piece. So the red Cobra was in the Magnaflow booth. And then the other car, which is, was all black. The car will end up being white when we do it. But uh, it was the unibody with none of the sheet metal, uh, none of the exterior sheet metal, right? So it was just all underneath. Uh, there was no, no rear quarter sheet metal. Everything was taken off of it. And then it had a Coyote engine with a Borla eight stack injection on it. So it had a, had a really cool, um, a naturally aspirated, uh, engine in it with the ITBs, uh, made it up to a Tremec six speed. And then it had a 2004 Cobra independent rear suspension on it. Um, and then full maximum motorsports, uh, modifications to the front and rear suspension and, uh, Brembo brakes. It had a set of Sparco SPX carbon fiber seats which weren't out yet at the time. And Sparco does the factory OE seats for a lot of, of the car manufacturers. Alfa Romeo was one of their clients. And I needed the Sparco seats covered in a blue leather. And they said, we don't do custom seats and we don't have any blue leather. Um, but luckily, uh, Sparco has been very good to us. Uh, they've been a sponsor of us for for a decade, and they backed our Paul Newman film. And uh, my friend at Sparkle was able to have the manufacturing plant in Italy go over to the Alfa Romeo line, pull nice. some blue leather off of somebody's special order car, off of his 4C, I guess, and cover the uh, the Sparco seats. So I've got a set of really really nice Sparco SPX seats done in a in a gorgeous blue, kind of a blue gray leather with the carbon fiber backs. 
yeah. uh, polished uh, carbon fiber. It's pretty nice. And that car was displayed in the Tokiko shocks booth. And we had adjustable Tokiko D-spec shocks on there. And that's why we displayed it that way. As we rolled it, we actually made a car. Uh, Bodie Stroud of RPS Industries, he assembled it for me, put the IRS in the back, and then built a a whole like rolling cart for that unibody to sit on as a display unit. And we were able to roll it in there and kind of show off all the suspension, the mechanics and everything else. So I I thought that was kind of a cool display. I I showed up at the SEMA show and I was pushing this thing into the Takiko booth and everyone's like, yeah, it's not as much car as I thought it would be. And then throughout the SEMA show, people were like, this is a cool, this is a cool display. There were so many photos and stuff taken. So I think, I think it kind of won them over eventually, which uh, I was happy. I was a little nervous. I never want to let anybody down. So I was like, oh, I think it'll be, I think it'll be okay. Like, look at all the cool stuff that we did. And it's in the fuel system and it's got the, you know, even the aeromotive fuel tank in the back. Like it's got all this cool stuff. And, and I think they ended up uh, really liking it. And, and so it worked out. Um, well, that's, the- you know, and, and I haven't finished it yet. So that's a whole nother car. I got to get back on at some point. So I've got three. Three projects. When you were describing the the scene with them going over to Alpha and taking the leather, mm-hmm. but that made me think about you could possibly have seen in Ford versus Ferrari. Mm-hmm. You know, like been going over there and stealing the the little uh, stopwatches because Ooh, a little bit of Days of Thunder as well when they stole the engine. Yes, and they had the oil leak. yes. Because <laughs> I've yeah, talked a little, about a little bit of that, but at least at least the Sparko guys stole it from the other Sparco guys. Sure. It was like, it was, it was basically the same team. They just went to the other side of the factory, but they literally told me that whoever ordered the Alfa Romeo, they had to contact the customer told them it was going to be delayed six weeks. <laughs> well, you know, that actually so, really made oops. me think about something you guys did do in Uppity yeah. because when they're blowing through those Buick motors and, yes. and all the pressure, it's like, Hey, give us that. You don't want to give it. Somebody else is going to make you give it. So that's kind <laughs> of made me think about that. By the way, I had two podcasts dedicated to Uppity. That's how much I loved it. That's so nice to hear. Thank you for that. Willie T is such a good guy. For those of you guys that haven't caught up on this, is we have a company called Chassis Media. Adam Crowell owns it. It's a production company. His partner, Nate Adams, runs it. And they produce um, uh, automotive documentaries. They're doing some other things as well, uh, some stand-up comedies and stuff like that. But we've done three automotive documentaries that uh, – well, we've done four, I believe, but uh, three of them are up on Netflix. And the one you're talking about is called Uppity, the Willie T. Ribs story. And Willie T. Ribs was the first black driver to qualify for the Indy 500. And he's such a character to work with, lives in Texas now. He's so enthusiastic. And he was talking about breaking barriers, man. He, man, he was, he got, he just got pushed back on every, every turn, everywhere he went. And, and no pun intended, just like every turn, he was just getting pushed back. Every Nobody turn. wanted every him. left turn. A black, oh my gosh. A, a, a black guy <laughs> trying to, to, to run a NASCAR back in the day and NASCAR supported it. And then the day of his race, they're like, you probably shouldn't show up. We're getting a little, it's getting a little hot out there. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just the temperature, like you, you should, it was, it was a tough, uh, Tough gig, tough gig. Speaking for sure. of, as a, as a side note, finally pulling the Confederate flag down, and I don't, <clears throat> I try not to get too, I don't really get into social issues very much on the podcast. My first uppity one, I gave people a slice of where I'm from, some of the things I experienced growing up because of that documentary, kind of brought it out for me to talk about 
and we covered mm-hmm. that quite a bit. Shelby American, fantastic. 24-hour war, fantastic. In fact, I told everybody, because I don't dislike Ford versus Ferrari, but there's when I saw the previews for that, I thought that they were talking about your movie. And yeah. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute, because Adam's been talking about this for a few years. Um, yeah. But then when I saw the 24-hour war, which I saw before that, like well before that. And then when I saw that, I was like, hey, it's pretty good. But if you really want to see something really cool, I've told everybody, go check out the 24-hour war. And everybody has come back to me and said, yeah, that was really good. I appreciate that. I love hearing that. I know Adam and Nate do as well. Uh, the 24-hour war was our documentary version of yep. the feature film Ford v. Ferrari, which the producers of Ford v. Ferrari did see our doc. I know that because one of their associate producers came up to me and said, we want to talk about your doc. And then we never heard from them again. Um, <laughs> but I would say I would say this, like I liked Ford v. Ferrari. Adam liked it as well, but we liked it because it was a good movie with great acting and it was fun to see uh, a, a well-made car movie. They Obviously, they had to take a few liberties to turn it into an exciting right. feature film, which sure, like I love Rush as well. That's a great film. Uh, and uh, we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, the big race toward the end. And they're like, oh, James Hunt places second. And the camera literally shows the leaderboard from second place down. When we interviewed Mario Andretti, we're like, hey, uh, uh, is your butt hurt a little bit? Because they didn't actually show who won that race. He's like, yeah. It kind of cheated me out of that glory uh, moment for them. In the movie, they don't say Mario Andretti won. They just say James Hunt got second. So there's a few liberties that Hollywood, I guess, gets to take for those types of things. But so we did the 24-hour war, which is that great story of Ford v. Ferrari. And then there is a Shelby component in that film. And then we realized the Shelby component was so big, it was going to end up being like 30 minutes of that film. So I think... Nate and Adam talked about it and said, you know what, we should make a separate Shelby movie. And that's what sparked the Shelby film. Now, all of the films that we've done, we've done with the full buy-in of everyone that we've been talking about. We worked with Willie T. Ribs and basically purchased or licensed his life rights for that. We worked with Ford and Ferrari on the 24-hour war. Now, Ferrari didn't want to work with us on that film because they ultimately lose that story. And it took us a year to get to them on board. And what happened was, is they saw our first film, the Paul Newman story, winning the racing life of Paul Newman. They loved the quality of that film and the honesty of it. And then they came back and said, yes, we'll be a part of your movie. We understand we don't win, but that's part of our racing history and our legacy. And uh, Nate flew out and interviewed Piero Ferrari, toured the Ferrari facilities and got a lot of those people. So we've got Ford's buy-in, we got Ferrari's buy-in on that film. Um, and then I guess you could say the sequel to The 24-Hour War would be Shelby American, which is the other movie that you saw that's definitely much more about Shelby. We work with Aaron Shelby and his brothers on that. They essentially became producers of that film. Uh, we wanted to make sure we were telling as much of the real story as possible. Anytime you do documentaries like this, there's always going to be people who lived it saying, uh, you know, right. you should have told this or right. you should have said that. And you, you missed it. And we're like, yeah, we've got 90 minutes. We don't it's not a six part documentary. We've got 90 minutes to tell the story. And which is interesting is 
we did a couple of big screenings to a lot of the old, uh, the original Venice crew, the Shelby guys, Shelby family, um, you know, Pete Brock, a, a lot of guys that were there. And then when we did our, our Hollywood debut of that, um, all of us, all of those guys actually came back and said, you nailed it. Like, we love that film. Sure. There's a little thing here and there, but, but we were able to like the nicknames of the guys and some of the little things that they talked about, um, were all in the documentary and all those guys were in the audience and they all had like a little bit of their moment, which is really what we wanted to give them. And that really just comes from the experience of making several documentaries at this point. Uh, Nate and Adam do such a great job doing that. So uh, it was so much fun to make. Like you said, we have, there's four documentaries. I believe they're all up at chassis.com. They are. C-H-A-S-S-Y. Um, but three of the docs, Uppity, Shelby American, and the 24-Hour War, I believe are still all up on Netflix. They are. So that's, can, where I, that's where I watch them. Yeah. Actually, I think I watched 24-Hour War on an airplane. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I think so. I, Nate, Nate got those deal. I, a lot of people told us, they're like, man, I've been watching all the docs on airplanes. I'm like, I don't even know how they get there. I, uh, it's one of the things that Nate has has managed to to work out for us. Uh, he does such a great job doing this. One of the things I loved about, well, I love the whole thing, but Shelby American was you guys spent time on the Daytona Coupes. Because yes. I don't know much about those cars, but every time I see one, it's like, I want that car. I need that yeah. car. And I didn't know the history on them. And I thought that was fantastic. I talked about that too. I don't talk about cars that much, but I definitely <laughs> talked about all three of those. And I actually haven't still seen the racing life of Paul Newman. And I think that was the first one too. That's the first one. And like, you, you don't have to be a racing fan or a Paul Newman fan. You're going to see, it's a little like uppity in that it's a pretty good story about a well-known celebrity that wanted to race cars. This guy was more into racing cars at this point in his life than he was acting. He started to just turn down roles and not act anymore. And keep in mind, Paul Newman at the time when he was getting into racing, he was the biggest star on the planet. Mm-hmm. He was equivalent of whoever's huge now, the, the Tom Cruise, The Rock, or whatever. Like Paul Newman was was the guy, and uh, and a nice guy at that. So um, it's it's a good. I think it's a really good story. That one I I did get to work on uh, quite a bit, and it was a lot of fun to do. So Paul Newman that had a cool crossover and uppity boom. There's Paul Newman, one of the few nice people who extended an arm out to Willie T ribs. So I thought that was, that's what happened. Amazing. Is we, we interviewed Willie T for the Newman film and fell in love with Willie and said, that's the next doc. And, uh, we started production on Willie T I believe right after Newman, but it took a it while took a for while. us to, yeah, to get that done. The reason why, is, and I think we can talk about this now because Adam's mentioned it on the podcast for a while, is we took the documentary, which was complete, and we shopped it around to a few companies that we would hope would distribute it. And the good and the bad was the companies we brought it to were like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to create the doc. But some of the people were like, I love this story. Let's, let's talk about what's going to happen with the story. So uh, a a friend of ours who is the creator and showrunner of billions on Showtime, Brian Koppelman. He loved this story and he wants to create an original scripted series based on Willie T's life. And it would mean licensing his life rights and 
putting together a team and writing, you know, start writing and hopefully get, you know, five seasons out of this thing and using the documentary as as a template for the whole thing. And then what happens is, is agents get involved and brokers are involved and negotiating's happening and blah, blah, blah. And it just sat in like this contract hell for like two years. Yeah. And finally, we just called and we're like, we're releasing the documentary. Like we've waited. This isn't, you know, whatever's going to happen, it's going to happen. And so the funny thing is, is we released the doc. People loved it. It got picked up by Netflix. And now Showtime is back going, all right, we're, Sure. We have the green light to start writing a pilot episode, so we'll see what's going to happen. Um, I think I've heard him kind of ranting about that, and I've I listened. I have another friend who does podcasts, and he had Willie T on there, and I want to say it was at the end of 2017 he was talking about just wrapping up filming that, and we yeah. didn't see it till last year. Yeah, crazy. I think I think the Newman film was like 2016, yeah. and then we started on on Uppity right away. Um, but look, I, I'd love to see. Uh, Uppity become a scripted series. I'd love to see it be a feature film the way Ford v. Ferrari was a feature film, which is the other half of the contract. There's a a big production company that's done several of the Marvel movies, and they got some big talent on board and directors on board, and they're kind of interested in that as well as a feature film. So now it's just kind of like, this is sort of above my pay grade, but Adam's team and management is kind of working on those deals to try to make it make something happen. I'd love to see something happen. I think it's a great story to tell, um, whether you see the documentary or maybe you can see a feature film or, or an original series someday. But Two last notes before we move on from Chassis. Number one, you had said that the Paul Newman is something you could see without really caring about cars. And it's true. I would say that's the same thing for all four of them. Because I'm, I know cars. I know race cars. I don't know all the drivers' names. These are movies I wanted to watch and they pull you in. If you can get anybody just to sit down and just spend five minutes on the beginning, they're going to watch the whole thing and they're going to walk away impressed because it's not, they're not stories about race car drivers. They're stories about people and things that happened in, in history in an educational and entertaining ways. They're very well done. So hat tip to all you guys over at Chassis. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I do appreciate that because that was definitely something we talked about when we did the Paul Newman documentary, everybody pretty knows Paul Newman's name. And then doing uppity, it was, it was, how do we tell a story that not many people know about? Right. How do you, how do you introduce a guy that not a lot of people knew about because he never really got the fame and the fortune out of it. Um, And it just had to be on telling the truth about how great this guy is and how wacky he is, how much fun he is. And, Imagine the confusion for people out there who are saying, why is there a documentary about a guy who makes salad dressing? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. The salad dressing company, like at the time, had had already made enough money and donated well over a half a billion dollars to charity. And what happened was when he was doing the salad dressing and the popcorn and everything else, they came to him and said, hey, we want to put your face on the label. And he said, well, if you're going to put my face on it, then this is going to be all to charity. And they said, okay, fine. Uh, Cause he was going to, you know, do a little bit of profit sharing. They were going to, I don't know, sure, 80, you know. 90%. And he says, well, make it all charity. And then it got so huge years later. He's like, Hey, if I, if I would have known, maybe, maybe I shouldn't have do- not donated right. it all to charity. It would have been funding my racing career for the rest of my, for the rest of my life. Uh, you know, just taking a, a, a small percentage, would have paid for everything because it 
turn into a huge, massive company. <laughs> Quick note about SEMA. Maybe with all this craziness that's been going on, SEMA will probably start to feel like it originally felt. Probably going to feel more like a, a, a diehard trade show. I think so. I love the SEMA show. It's my favorite event of the year. But I'm such a nerd in this space. It's because I love the parts. Like, of course, I go and I meet with all uh, the people and the friends, and especially all the companies that aren't out in California that I don't get to talk to all the time in person. I love going back and meeting with them and interviewing them and hanging out with them, you know, grabbing a grabbing dinner or something with them. But uh, I just geek out. Like, I spend hours just going through that new parts showcase. And I walk up and down every aisle, look at every single part. And, you know, some of them are a little less interesting to me, but uh, some of them are super interesting. And I just go through every one uh, to see what's out there. I'm just uh, such a nerd when it comes to the aftermarket parts world. (laughs) Let's talk about uh, press cars. Yeah. Speaking of, because you just had the murdered out Bentley. How long do you typically have a car? Um, are they basically essentially your daily drivers? Cause I know you're driving, you know, the truck right now, you know, how often do you have these cars? How long do you have them? It kind of goes up and down a little bit over the course of the year. This year is going to be kind of uh, tricky, but you know, as you would imagine when new cars come out and auto shows come out and then some couple of months after that, the, the press fleets start to fill up with new models. So there are often times where there's a few months where you're you're not driving any press cars, and then there are times where you're just driving them back to back. So typically, it's about one okay. week at a time, and uh, it's all pretty much organized. All the manufacturers do it kind of the same way. You work with their PR teams and fleet teams to to schedule the cars, and then there are some companies out here. I guess you could call them event companies, and they have warehouses full of these press cars, and they manage that fleet. So they schedule it. They bring the car here. You know, it's cleaned up. It's full of gas. Uh, you do your thing with it. Whatever journalist is working on, if it's Motor Trend, they sometimes they plan tests at the track or, or Edmonds goes to their test track. Or sometimes they just drive them around and give an opinion. And then, you know, you, they pick up the car. They bring it back. They They check it over. If somebody accidentally you know, dings a rim or cracks a windshield that's got to go to the dealer and get fixed. So these, these sort of these event companies that manage all these cars and I don't know, there's maybe five or six companies that do it. And Hmm. each company has several manufacturers as clients and, and that's kind of the business that they do. But interesting. they they also like, let's say LA auto show rolls around uh, in, uh, in November and part of that is a bunch of the executives, let's say Ford executives are all going to come into town. So they call up their event company that manages the press fleet and they say, you know, we, we need, you know, we need a new navigator, bring us the navigator. We're going to, we're going to have our executives roll around the navigator and then bring another car and another car. And we're going to put these different guys in them. We're going to move them around, you know? So those, those companies do that kind of, stuff as well so for their own teams as well as for the for the press the podcast and stuff that i do um i i like to i guess i sort of consider them more on the entertainment side than i do on the journalist side sure Uh, the guys that are out there that are testing cars um they do a great job doing it we work with Edmonds a lot uh i use Edmonds for a lot of reference you know (laughs) they, they have a great 
Great testing facility, very clear on on their testing. They're zero to 60 runs with a rollout, without a rollout. Um, and uh, their editor-in-chief, Alistair Weaver, comes on to CarCast um, once a month or so and uh, talks about uh, some of the new cars and the tests and stuff. And when we get our the press cars, you know, we, we drive them around, we photograph them, and then it's really more of, of our opinion. Like, what do we think about it? Like, how sure. does it compare to something else that we've driven? It's sort yep. of the real yep. world statistics. I got to be honest with you. There's 100%. a lot of there's a lot of magazine articles that you're reading, and and you know somebody who's like, oh, I took this, uh, you know, this Mazda SUV uh, to the track and had a little bit of understeer, you know, and and it it's handled like, dude, this way. You took like, a Mazda SUV to the track. What do you think is going to happen? Like, I I get it, but do you think people who are buying it care what understeer <laughs> is or even know? Like, no. You know, like, I just want to know, um, and by the way, not everybody does that, but that's just sort of become the testing benchmark for a lot of things is, are those numbers? But now we're starting to get into some more testing. And uh, and, and again, I bring up Edmonds again, because um, they, they do a pretty good job in that they're saying, you know what, they're like, it's really easy to tie down a, a car seat in this thing. And, and uh, oh, hey, this so-and-so minivan's got a built-in shop vac so you can suck up Cheerios if you got kids in the backseat, you know, and that's a thing. And yeah, that's an actual thing. Uh, or, that's awesome. You know, little quirky things. I think it was in the, maybe it was in the most recent Nissan GTR where it had, um, there's two USB ports and they got CarPlay in the car, but you plug, <laughs> it's a little counterintuitive. Like you plug your phone into the USB port number one, CarPlay doesn't work. And then when you check the manual, they're like, oh, it's only hooked up to USB port two. It has a little white outline around it to tell you, but it doesn't really it doesn't, tell you. It, it doesn't tell you anything. Yeah. Right? It doesn't tell you anything. And you're like, yeah, but wouldn't my sort of my go-to move be like, use port number one. It's literally called one. Use yep. it first. But it, it's it's port number two. Like, I don't even remember if it was specifically the GTR, but something that I got into was that. I was like, it says it's got CarPlay. I don't know why it's not working. I don't want to make a call and look like an idiot. Let me grab the manual, figure it out. And it's like, oh, you got to use port. So two. do you like CarPlay? <laughs> Uh, I, I do. I, it's, yes. You know, he, I ask you that because LA, my tagline when I do my rental car reviews is no car play, no J. And every once in a while I'll make an exception. Like if Hertz, which we'll talk about that. It, if Hertz mm-hmm. it just happens to allow me to take the new five series, you know, they don't have car play, but I'll make an exception that week. Otherwise no car play, no J. Yeah. You know, and I think, um, I think it's Audi and somebody else had, uh, wireless car play which more people can do it's just like i don't know an added fee and some added technology uh you know like you pay apple and you pay whatever manufacturer but i like the idea of bluetooth enabled car play so instead of plugging in your phone mm-hmm. you just keep your phone in your pocket or you throw it in a door pocket or whatever you want and it connects to car play i used that recently and that's fantastic but Yes, there are some cars that don't have CarPlay. For me, it's kind of a mandatory. I'm with you on this one. And in LA, so many of the phone calls and stuff that I make are in the car because I know I'm going to be in traffic for 45 minutes. It's just a way to continue working throughout the day. It's just hook up the phone, make some calls, do some text-to-speech kind of stuff. Um, and, of course, the navigation and everything. No CarPlay, no wireless CarPlay. I know, right? Uh, I don't know what to do. Like I, I'm, I'm like... 
my phone's on speakerphone and it's in a cup holder. And they're like, why do you sound like shit? I'm like, ah, it's no CarPlay. Um, but some of the deals that are in place are kind of interesting. So I drove a Rolls-Royce Cullinan, their SUV, which is beautiful and it rides fantastic. It has their magic carpet ride, as they say. Um, but it has rear seat entertainment. And although price is not an object when it comes to uh, the features in a Rolls Royce, like somebody's going to pay for it and they want everything they can. Right. There's no car play in that vehicle because they tried several times to work with Apple on making car play work for the rear seat entertainment as well as the front. And for whatever reason, Apple said no, or we're not ready, or we can't do it. And Rolls Royce said, if we can't have all the features, we don't want it at all. So there's no car play in the Rolls Royce Cullinan. I'm sure there will be soon. Uh, they'll figure it out. That's got to be um, like the needs of the few. Yeah. I just drove the Aston Martin DBS Superleggero, which I love that car. It's beautiful. I, I love the DB11, but it feels a little soft. The Superleggero fixes all that. It's like 715 horsepower. What a terrible I love life. The, oh, my God. I love the GT styling of cars. I love the long nose front engine. Uh, sort of front mid, I guess you could say, uh, styling of those cars, like the big 12-cylinder Ferraris, the front-engine Ferraris, that Superleggero. And that car at, I don't know, $350,000 doesn't have car play. Well, not because they couldn't do it technology-wise. is because AMG does the engines, the V8 engines at least, and the technology, the infotainment system and everything. And the deal with AMG and Aston Martin is Aston Martin needs to run the most previous generation version of their software in the infotainment system. So they don't feel like buying uh, a, a DB11 would be competitive with the AMG GT, right? If CarPlay was one of the deciding factors. So although the DB11 has been out for a few years, this new version, I guess the 21, which will come out later this year, will have CarPlay because AMG is doing a software upgrade on their end for all of their cars, which means now the previous version will go to Aston Martin. It literally is just a contract negotiation. Like, I, I don't know what else they had to like take the previous generation version on, but that's that was one of the deals. AMG was like, we will provide the electronics. We'll give you our infotainment system. We'll give you our window switches. We'll even make you V8 engines, but you don't get CarPlay. <laughs> Like, what? <laughs> Again, we're talking to Matt, the motorator, DeAndrea. I try to get that in every 15 minutes or so, but the conversation has <laughs> been so free flowing. What's been your favorite press car? And I'm, I don't want to get you in trouble. So if you want to pass on this, it's what's been your favorite press car and what's been your least favorite press car to date? Um, my least favorite, and this was years ago, was the Nissan Leaf. <laughs> so far, my favorite now it's tough because you like them for different reasons, yeah, but yeah. I'm going to say the McLaren 720S. That's a beautiful car. It just does so many things well. It, it's it's easy to drive. It's so fast. It sounds good. Uh, I've driven the coupes. I've driven the, the convertible. I filmed a bunch of videos with it. Uh, I think we just put one up on YouTube on the Roads and Rides channel. It's a little bit of sort of uh, just some clips from from some stuff we, we shot for McLaren we were able to like close off Angela's crest and I was sort of given free reigns to, to 
drive a 720s as much and as hard as i wanted i was like oh that sounds like a good day to me <laughs> yeah like i said your job sucks my next door neighbor <laughs> growing like, up he he wrote for the dallas morning news mm-hmm. and so he used to bring home a different car every week and as oh, a nice. you know teenager i mean i subscribed to road and tracks without our cars quarterly and dupont registry and all that kind of stuff to me that was like candy but he never really got anything super cool i think once he brought home a really cool volvo like a 800 series but you're like next level, some of the stuff that you get to drive. And you have to be, I mean, there has to be at some point where you stop pinching yourself and wondering if this was real. Yeah, all the time we do. I mean, we, when I talk about these cars on the podcast, you're like, I can't believe we're going to drive this. I mean, I, I've i got the Shelby GT500 out front. Of course, one of my favorite guy of cars, being a Mustang guy, being a Ford guy, this thing is just fantastic. And what Mustang is able to do with their cars, you know, some of the technology and the features are things that, you know, you'd have to spend a lot of money on and, or certainly start jumping into, you know, BMW M5, M4 territory, like, you know, magnetic, uh, magna ride suspension, you know, sport mode, quiet mode, track mode. It has a launch control, it has a drag race mode with launch control and a Christmas tree on the dash and, you can program it to start quiet in the morning to not know, annoy your neighbors and then start later in the day in a loud mode if you want. Like all these features. And you don't have to spend $80,000 on a GT500 to get all of those features. Uh, a Mustang GT for under 40 grand or something will, will get you a lot of those features as well. So uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty impressive what, what uh, we're able to do now. So let's go over a little bit of news. I think I need to throw a sponsor at this, so I think I'm going to go ahead and pick Dress Up Bolts. I don't know if you've heard of Dress Up Bolts, but yeah, DressUpBolts.com. They have titanium bolts that not only vastly improve the look of your vehicle, but also serve as a purpose as well. Available to dress up the engine and engine bay. Have kits ready to go for your specific application. Go and pay them a visit. Browse a little. Let them know the Hard Parking Podcast sent you. Use code HARDPARKING, one word, and save 10% today. So Hertz filed bankruptcy, sort of, because they're still around. Yeah. They're special branded rental cars. All their cars are hitting the market. Personally, I'm guilty of blowing out rotors on pads on two rentals, but it was on the same day. <laughs> it was, I had two uh, Infinity Q50s. And the reason I had to, because I completely destroyed the brakes on one around Road America. And then I took it back <laughs> and I did the morning session the next day with the second car, basically blew those out. I skipped the second session, figured I'd quit while I was ahead. Have you? destroyed a rental car ever on accident i don't do a ton of rental cars of course we kind of get spoiled we get a lot of press cars so and then the press cars i'm always very sensitive about because i don't want to hurt anything and get kicked off the list (laughs) you know but we've had a few adventures in, in rental cars for sure especially in the younger days where you know you're driving down a hill in your neighborhood and you're like oh i wonder how how well this e-brake works and see if I can get us to spin around in a circle. Normal and, stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're just sliding around doing that. But, um, which is interesting is I just had a couple of weeks ago, um, well, Dodge sent over the Dodge charger Hellcat wide body, which is a, a beast of a car and fun. And then they said, Hey, let's back it up with something a little more refined. So they, right after that, after the, the Charger, they swapped it out for the Alfa Romeo Stelvio SUV, the Quattrofolio. 505 horsepower, 
carbon ceramic brakes, uh, zero to 60 in like 3.3 or 3.4 seconds. And it pulls 0.94 G's in the turns. And you can put it in manual mode, paddle shift, the whole thing. It's just all wheel drive. Um, so it hooks up a hell of a lot better than, of course, the charger. I say, yeah, this will be a great little kind of comparison of what that company is doing now. And then uh, some friends of mine called me up, um, <laughs> a buddy named uh, Jeremy Fry. And he said, Jeremy Fry is a fantastic stunt driver. He did a lot of driving for Baby Driver. He drove for John Wick, uh, Fast and Furious movies, um, just constantly working. He's so he the has nicest a resume. Guy. Oh my God. Yeah. He's, and he's the nicest guy. And he really knows what he's doing. And he's so calm. And, and, and he said, Hey, uh, all of our productions are shut down. Myself and a bunch of our, our, our stunt buddies uh, aren't working. So we're all going to just go hit Willow Springs, Streets of Willow for a track day. So I, I, uh, I'm looking outside, I'm looking at this 505 horsepower SUV. <laughs> I shoot a text over to, uh, the guy out from LA. Um, can I take your car to the track? <laughs> He's like, sure. Nice. And, uh, so, so I drive up to Willow and I get there and off in the distance, I see my buddy Tanner Faust standing around doing nothing at the time. And I'm like, Hey Tanner. Great. What's going on? <laughs> I was like, I'm not so good on this track, especially because we're running counter counterclockwise. Let's go. So I get in. I'm doing some laps. He's walking me through the whole thing. And then uh, I said, well, all right, now that I did it and I felt like I was going fast and I was a rock star, I was like, let's switch places. What a terrible move for me. Right? Because now <laughs> I've got now I've got Facing the glass. driving this thing. And and I know most people like I'm not on a racetrack. I'm a, I'm a great passenger on the street. I never know what anybody else is doing. So I'm always sure, worried yeah, about what, yep. but on a racetrack, I'm just sitting there going, okay. And Tanner's just flying around the track, damn near getting this thing on two wheels. And he, he's just talking the whole time. We ran the car with the air conditioning on because it's a hundred degrees outside. Everybody else is dying out there and we got the air on and, and he's just like, yeah, see this. I'm going to hit this apex here. And he goes, oh, you, he goes, when you turn the traction control off, you can feel it's not really off. He goes, you can feel it a little bit here. Watch. Gets into another turn. He goes, see, feel that? He's like, yeah. I was like, man, just to have that ability and that much car control and that much confidence in, in what it's doing is uh, is fantastic to see. It's fantastic to learn from, but I don't even know how you get to that point. I'm never going to be that kind of driver. In my head, uh, when I'm dreaming at night, I am that driver, but in reality, sure. not even close. Well, I mean, guys like but, uh, him and Jeremy and even, you know, Kim Block, which you were talking about yeah. on the other podcast, it's just, they're so next level. Yeah. They could do this stuff are. in their sleep. And I think one of the craziest things about the story with Tanner, though, is you're in a passenger vehicle. It's not like you're in a multi-point harness, like you'd be around a drift car, like probably yeah. Ken's car. So you feel you're a little more secured. I've been around a a, um, a test track with a, a professional race car driver, a friend of mine, and that's when I first realized, I forgot what he had, like a Nissan something, maybe an Altima or, or Maxima or whatever the rental car was up in Columbus. But that's when I realized, and I tell everybody this, these normal cars are capable of so much more than you think. It's like, don't get out there and drive like an idiot. But chances are that car that you got is pretty capable to get in and out of trouble on the street. And that just... The things that these guys do that know how to do it, obviously, is so mind-blowing 
on just normal fleet rental vehicles. I mean, yours wasn't a normal fleet rental vehicle, but it's just so mind blowing to me. Yeah, I've said on our shows for a long time as well. Adam and and Goldberg both, you know, they both done this. They both agree is, at, like anybody going to get a license, or even if you have a license, go do a course over at like the Bondurant School or some some pretty good driving school or racing school. If you're turning 16, by the way, parents, your your kids that are getting a license soon, you don't have to spend a fortune. Go do the half day course for a few hundred bucks. Hundred percent. Just do it so you understand what a car is capable of doing. And what you can do to be safer in the car. You'd be surprised uh, how you can move a car out of the way with ABS brakes. Like you could point that thing straight and basically go hard left or hard right and then straight again to avoid hitting a car in front of you and be on the brakes the whole time with, with ABS. Like if you know what you're doing and you should be able to experience that. And those schools will put you in a scenario where you will be able to do that safely. They'll get you way out in a big skid pad, set up some cones, and they'll say, just go full blast, hit the brakes, turn here, turn there. And the skid pad cars where where they you see the cars and they're on like training wheels and they can lift the car up so it has very little traction. And in slow motion, you can start to spin around like if you hit water or ice. You know, just being able to understand what the car is doing and, and how to control it. Um, and do it in sort of a slow motion environment. Absolutely, everybody should go and do it. It should almost be mandatory for everybody getting a license. But if you want to be safe and understand anything about driving, you absolutely should go. How to avoid things out there. Just, just yeah, be more cognizant of your surroundings. Being mm-hmm. a big Mustang guy, what are your thoughts on the Mustang Mach-E? I personally think it's super cool. I thought the purists were going to hate it, but I read more positive than negative. Like, what are your thoughts on it? So I went to the um, I was invited to go to the to the debut of this their big event that they had out here and I'm I'm a fan I like it when you see that thing in person it's good looking SUV it's a nice looking uh, car I had an opportunity to ride in one I, I wasn't able to drive it I was with one of the Ford engineers but I rode in one and um, I like it I dig it a lot. I don't really care if it's called a Mustang or not. And that's been a lot of the debate. You're like, maybe you're hurting the Mustang brand. Maybe you're not hurting the Mustang brand. I don't care. As a, as an all electric, you know, SUV from Ford, that thing is pretty cool. And the idea of their GT version, getting Magna ride and some performance upgrades. So it can kind of fit in the Mustang brand is pretty cool as well, because they're doing a good job with, all the revisions of that stuff. You know, you think of a Mustang GT, the first version with Magnaride and then the bullet, and then the bullet got a revised version of the Magnaride, which is better handling and smoother suspension. Like as they do more of this, that refined technology gets to trickle down to new models. And it's, I think it's the right size for, for that audience. Um, the range and stuff is going to be fine on it. And uh, both the, the standard version and the GT version I think we'll have enough performance that you'll be Im- impressed with it. And the sensation of speed is always more because there's not a lot of sound involved. So if the, I think the regular version is like zero to 16, 5.3 seconds or something. And then the GT is going to be quite a bit faster than that. It's around four seconds. And then the, uh, the GT performance edition is matching the GT 500 zero yeah. to 62. Yep. That's what they're saying. And with an estimated range of 235 miles, I'm excited about it. And it's probably going to be, I don't even know what it would be to get the GT or, or performance 
probably significantly more kind of like the the c8 comes out and everyone said for sixty thousand you can get all this but no one's getting theirs for 60. no um i don't know that it's going to be a huge jump in price they're trying to make it as feature rich as possible um, and they're going to have all the crazy fun colors that the Mustangs have. Um, and you mentioned the 230 or so miles. Uh, I believe Estimated. that's, yeah, I think that's a little bit on the low end of that battery pack. I think you can get battery packs up to 300 miles, depending on two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive and performance pack and not performance pack. But there's a scenario that you can get anywhere from like 230 to 300, maybe 300 and change. Oh, nice. And just to kind of back up what you were saying, yeah, so the GT is starts at 60, but the, the price of the vehicle is 48 to 60. So it's probably 48 yeah. to maybe 70 or 68 or something. Yeah, that sounds pretty accurate. What are your thoughts on the C8? I like the C8. Um, I was uh, invited to the debut presentation of that as well. I think the performance is going to be fantastic. I think it's priced pretty well. You know, you get in that car at 80, 85 grand right. with 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 enough equipment to make it fun um but also keep in mind this is this is corvette that we're talking about so expect to see uh you know hotter versions maybe z06s zr1s um you know uh i'm sure you know ken lingenfelter uh ken's a great guy just really one of the nicest guys in in this whole industry and i think he bought like five of them and for for his company and he's like we're doing naturally aspirated and we're doing like turbo we're supercharged and we're doing suspension tuning and a drag pack car he's like he's just he's like we're just all in we're just going to start testing and tuning and testing and tuning and coming out with some great packages and of course as he's doing that uh there will be you know hotter versions of 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 that car which is going to be kind of interesting and I, i'm sure there's going to be an ev version um, you're an NSX guy. Uh, I don't know what your feelings are on the new NSX. I love the car, but I think the Corvette C8 could have a version of that rear wheel drive, uh, powered by the gas engine and front wheels possibly powered by electric motors. So you could see an NSX competitor. I don't think it'll be priced like an NSX, but there could be some version of that. I thought I read that that was a possibility and I don't remember if it was uh, from a legit source or, but the fact that you just said it kind of makes me think I read it somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm a huge fan of the NC1 NSX. Probably mm-hmm. will sell my NSX in a couple of years and pick up one of those. But, you know, we'll see when that time comes. Let's talk about the podcast a little bit. I don't get an opportunity to listen to every car cast and you and sure. I actually had an email exchange years ago. We were had a NS Expo in Palm Springs, and I didn't know you. I just was familiar with your name from the podcast. And that was my only interaction with you. And then, of course, meeting you guys at Monterey. Because for me, being around people that you're used to listening to, it's just, you're like, oh, wow, that's so-and-so. But for me, that was a, that was a huge event. But for CarCast Show, you've been involved from that from the beginning? Has it been the beginning? It's been around for, what, 10 years? Yeah, so it was um, 11 years uh, for me this month. Um, I wasn't hosting it the whole time. I came in and, and was producing the show, and then a couple years into it, I was hosting it. And that kind of started the relationship with Adam. Adam is fantastic. Uh, how did we, that happen? Uh, like, how were life before Adam versus boom, there you are? Like, because I know you had a life before Adam. Like, how did you get involved with the Car Cash show? Yeah, you know, in, in the technology space, I was 
I was working in the internet technology space and through a friend there, we were both car guys. We we're doing some track days and stuff together. And, and he knew Adam and then Adam was leaving radio to do some podcasting. And, uh, you know, that friend, a mutual friend of ours said, would you, would you like to come by and check it out? I know you're really into cars. We can use some help on producing a show like this. And, and I said, sure, let me come by and just see if there's anything I can do. And, you know, and for several years, I just kind of helped out uh, for free, setting up the show and booking some guests and helping to produce some content and stuff in that space. Uh, and, you know, Adam and I got to to know each other more and more and looking at his car collection and kind of what he wanted to do to it and and the business and stuff as well. And then we just, you know, he had s- such great ideas and such great vision for his car collection and started selling off a lot of the street cars, focusing more on the racing cars. He just loved the stories and the backgrounds of those cars. So, you know, we we spent basically a, a decade now on curating it, um, which now has 12 Paul Newman race cars and some pretty cool stuff. We've got Paul Newman's racing helmets and driving suits. And, and Tom Cruise raced with Paul Newman early in his career. He was just becoming a huge star. He was getting ready to do Days of Thunder, I believe. And uh, before that, he raced two years with Paul Newman. And we, we have Tom Cruise's original racing suit and his helmet hanging on our wall next to our Paul Newman. That's stuff. crazy. I had no. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, well, along with, with several photos of, of Newman and, and, uh, and Cruise when they were doing that together. So that was kind of a neat thing as well. Um, we've got a bunch of the BRE cars. Those are the Brock Racing Enterprise cars. If you guys are Dots and Nissan fans, yep. Um, Pete Brock. But by the way, if you saw uh, Ford v Ferrari or you saw our Doc the Twenty Four Hour War, you'll you'll know about Pete Brock. Mm-hmm. The uh, the Shelby Daytona, the Daytona Coupe that we were talking about that we both really love. That's Pete Brock. He designed that car. He basically spearheaded um, the build of that thing, and then uh, he went on to. Uh, to race uh, dots of 510s, dots and roadsters, Z cars. And we've got uh, quite a few of those in the collection as well that Adam's been able to pick up. And by the way, Pete, a, a great friend. Um, uh, he lives in Vegas. He's been by several times. We work with him quite a bit. You know, He comes over and sees the cars and uh, always shows up and tells us stories about the cars, things you would just never even believe about how things kind of happened back in the day. And we got the BRE Dotson 2000 Roadster and it has this cool, like, crazy air dam in the front that turns off to, like, brake scoops. And uh, But it really was an aerodynamic thing. Wow. He's like, yeah. He said, we weren't allowed to have those. He goes, so I made it and convinced everyone it was brake scoops. <laughs> and uh, he goes, but really, it was arrow. And he goes, and then we kicked everybody's ass. And the next season, everybody was running their version of it. And everyone was like, it's brake scoops. It's air ducts for the brakes. And it really was just a total aerodynamic thing because he did study aerodynamics. And back in the day, he was at Art Center in, in, in Pasadena. So, uh, yeah, and uh, I don't know how old uh, Pete is now, 80? I have a friend local here who's working on an old Datsun, and he started communicating with the guys over there. And he realized mm-hmm. after a while he was communicating with Pete. Yeah. That's just how down to earth and personable the guy is. He, that's he really is. Amazing. If you, uh, he's been on our podcast several times. We've done live shows at SEMA with him yep. as well. Um, I hosted a press event, I think it was two years ago, 
at the New York Auto Show for Nissan and uh, uh, and had the head of the GTR program and Pete Brock all on and so much fun. So how did you? Because you're you're like the technical guy. When I listen to the podcast, you kind of steer on the the technical side, less goofy. Yeah. Although on on shift steer, I it looks it's like you get I'm to not funny. Well, <laughs> I mean, like <laughs> like on shift and steer, you're a little more loose. But with yeah, Carcast, I mean, for a while it was you and Adam, and then I noticed within the last what year or two, maybe is that when Bill started cycling in every other week, or is it even more recent than that? Yeah, so uh, after doing this for a decade with with Adam and still doing it, I met Bill on a TV show years ago. Uh, I don't know, six seven years ago, and we kind of just hung out and kind of hit it off, became friends, and looked for a while for a project for us to do something in the car world. And then uh, you know we, we tested a few things, we did some some stuff together and some more TV stuff. And then I just told him, it's like, you know, let's just do the podcast together. Um, I'll build it off. We'll do a spinoff show of CarCast. Adam's on board with the whole thing. Um, he's friends with Goldberg as well. You know, actually Goldberg did uh, episodes of The Man Show with Adam and, way, and back. way back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so they all know each other. And we were all at Goodwood together in the UK at the Hill Climb. Um, and uh, so Bill was on board with it. And so for the last two years, we've been doing a show, just a second weekly episode of CarCast. I, every Wednesday, a show gets posted with me and Goldberg, and every Friday, a show with uh, me and uh, Adam. So every week, we do two episodes. Well, I do two episodes. They each do one. And then, well, Adam's doing 100,000 other podcasts as well. Yeah, he's, he's, he's pretty busy. <laughs> and then you have your shift and steer. How often do you yeah, do that? Yeah. Uh, I do that show once a week as well. We record on Fridays. That usually gets posted on Tuesdays. Um, so I do three shows a week, uh, Adam, Goldberg, and Shift and Steer. Shift and Steer is a little bit different kind of show. We talk about a lot of new stuff and some old hot rodding stuff as well. I just did that because it was a couple friends and we wanted to be able to, to just tell some different kind of stories. It was really all about Pete Shaporis. Now, Pete Shaporis uh, created an old hot rod shop back in the day called Pete and Jake's. Um, it did well. He sold it and had a non-compete. He couldn't build hot rods for a while. So he joined the SEMA organization. He was like the first VP of marketing for SEMA ever. That's how long ago he joined this. And then he approached Alex Exidius and said, Alex, let me bring back the SoCal Speed Shop brand. And uh, they worked out a deal and they did. And uh, and for years and years, um, Pete built SoCal Speed Shop, and uh, they got the um, the main headquarters in the shop in Pomona, I believe. And then they franchised out a bunch of other stores and built a huge brand and some amazing hot rods. And Pete got a little older, and he just wanted to be able to tell some stories. So we created a podcast where we can get into all that kind of stuff. Um, now, a few years after we started the podcast, um, uh, unfortunately, Pete, Pete passed away. Uh, and we just wanted to decide if we were going to keep doing it. And we decided to keep doing it. And so my other co-hosts uh, from day one have always been uh, Brad Fanshaw, who owns Bond Speed Wheels. Uh, he owned Bonneville Watches. Um, he was a partner and a co-owner of Boyd Coddington's Garage, building a lot of hot rods back in the day. Shazoom and Alumacoop and all these, you know, one of the original hot rod guys um, as well. So 
Brad went on to see Michelle several times, winning four design awards, GM design awards. Uh, he's just a great designer, great builder. And now he's mostly running uh, Bond Speed Wheels company. And then uh, Aaron Hagar, who's Sammy Hagar's son from Van okay. Halen. Yeah. Aaron, he's so much fun. He's just a, the sweetest guy ever. Uh, he's super into rat rides. He's an incredible artist, painter, you know, airbrush guy and he worked in uh in hollywood doing special effects and set design and stuff and all of his cars are just crazy wacky and he just builds so much stuff on his own and and all this crazy patina and beautiful stuff which is more of a uh, i i would say rat rod because his, his place is called rat rod's garage he's got a, an amazing artistic eye and he's so much fun to talk to and just giggles all the time every i noticed that. giggle 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 yeah. giggle yeah. like that's all he does amazing um, energy it's fantastic um so brad and i and uh and aaron do the podcast uh it comes out i believe every tuesday that show comes out what sort of advice would you give somebody getting into podcasting a relatively new podcaster well, you know, podcasting is pretty easy. It's a very low barrier to entry. There's a lot of um, turnkey programs out there that'll get you set up on the distribution side on iTunes and, and stuff like that. Um, the advice I would give would be the same thing that Adam would, you know, gave me over the years. He's like, just do the reps. It's like going to the gym. The only way you're going to get good at it is just to keep doing it and just keep doing it. Uh, don't expect your first show to be your best show, but expect every show after that to be potentially a little bit better and uh, just just go out and do it and just um, do the reps. But you got to be consistent with it as well. There's a lot of podcasts that start and people are like, oh, it's more work than I thought. It's not making any money, you know, or I'm having trouble getting guests. Maybe not all shows have to be have to have guests. You know, you have to be consistent with it and just do the reps. Well said. And you also said something earlier that I've echoed and I got it from Adam, of course. And when you first started helping him out, you were doing it for free. My guess is you were doing mm -hmm. it for the experience, kind of the exposure, uh, just the, yeah. the learning. And that's what I tell people because I'm part of a couple podcast groups. They kind of echo from a frustration level. And it's like, if you're running out of content, don't crowdsource for content. Know what you want to talk about. If you're doing three podcasts a week and you don't know what to talk about, then go to one podcast a week and save the three different things into one. Stop worrying about the numbers. Don't get into it for the wrong reasons. Just keep doing it. So it's great to have heard you say that because... I tell everybody I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not a professional, but I know what I want and I work really hard to get to it. And I've said, sometimes you just have to do shit for free and then the rest will come. Yeah, I agree with that. I wouldn't do podcasting really for, I, I wouldn't suggest anybody do podcasting for the money. There's a handful of people, especially you read about in the news now, about making tons of money on podcasting, but it's not the norm. You know, there's, I don't know, 550,000 podcasts registered on iTunes. And I'd be surprised if 500,000 of them, maybe 540,000 of them were making any real money, you know, and, and believe me, as far as doing it because you love doing it, I, I certainly do it that way. You're doing it that way. But Adam's actually a pretty good example of doing it that way as well. Um, we've been doing car cats, like I said, for 11 years and Adam doesn't really make money off of, off of doing car cats, especially in comparison to his flagship shows. He does it because he he loves the show. He really enjoys doing it. And we love having those conversations. And he's super passionate about it. He's passionate about, about the cars and learning in that world so much so that he has a car collection and created Chassis Media to create documentaries 
you know, so, uh, you know, it's my favorite hour of the week is getting into a studio and sitting next to Adam and doing that for a decade. And, and by the way, no better person on the planet to sit next to and learn from as far as how to talk into a microphone or do any sort of improv or, or hold the conversation. He's, he's the best improv guy in the world. I mean, his story is fantastic for people who just want to take a second and sit down and listen to it, listen to him talk. I listen to actually, I actually, listen, I listen to uh, Ace on the House probably more than any of the rest of them. Mm-hmm. And I'm not yeah. a contractor, but my son asked me, and I oh, actually, I told you guys in Monterey, he's like, "Hey, Dad, why do you listen to this show? You don't build houses." I go because it's entertaining. You learn miscellaneous stuff. You learn about projects around because you know as a homeowner and. I, get, I told you guys at the time that he walked up to me outside when I was trying to fix the in-ground sprinkling with masking tape in his hand because he thought we were going to tape that to the wall. And that's why I listen to the <laughs> yeah. show so I don't try to use masking tape on my wall outside in the elements. Mm-hmm. But he has a yeah. s- certain delivery style. And you're and, and on CarCast, you're a perfect complement to that because you like you reel it and <laughs> like you help reel the, you know, control the, the flow of the, the information and you bring the educational oh, aspect. That's what I appreciate I try to that. Do. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I appreciate yeah. that. Let's talk about your Fox Body obsession really quick, because I I have some Fox Body experience. I'm 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 all ears. Tell me about it. All right. Everybody should have Fox Body experience, but go ahead. Everybody should. <laughs> so I've never actually owned a Mustang, but my brother, his first car, he's two years older than me. He had a, and I don't know the year. I tried to look it up. He had an early to mid '80s LX with T tops, so it had yeah. the. It didn't have the the 92 front, you know, it had kind of the slant front and most people aren't going to know what the hell I'm talking about, but you yeah, would. So he had a four I car. He had a like four I car. So yeah, we had the GTO blackout headlight covers that you get from like chief auto mm-hmm. parts or pet boys. Cause everybody had them at the time. I don't even know if AutoZone was a thing or not, but, but the thing is this car had no power. The speedometer yeah. went up to 85, but I earned the nickname crazy J because when I picked my friends up, when I borrowed my brother's car, which, by the way, the first time I tried to move his car, we were at a friend's apartment and I, I didn't have a license. And <laughs> I turned the wheel and backed out a little bit and I hit one of the little uh, carport posts because I had no idea what I was doing. So I put a small dent in his car the first time I tried to drive a car. <laughs> well but, done. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. But I used to drive this thing and when, when I would put the pedal to the floor and I had no idea how fast I was going because the car would develop this hardcore shake, like the super <laughs> shake. When it passed 85 and of course you don't know anything when you're that age, but looking back, it was probably a busted motor mount or something, unless that's something symptomatic of those cars, maybe two blown motor mounts. Then later on, he bought a 92 red LX. Again, no power. I used to take his car out and just drive around the Dallas Fort Worth area with my friends. We wouldn't get in any trouble. We would just drive around or take it to a girlfriend's house. So that makes me a Fox body expert. Yeah. Where did your obsession come from? Uh, it was just the era. Like, in high school, like our years of high school, you were saying the same age. Well, had us in the early nineties, early to mid nineties, and uh, and the Fox Body was was really at at the peak during those times. Ninety four was the new body child, the body style change, the SM ninety five car. So, um, so yeah, we had the eighties Mustangs and we had the nineties Mustangs. Uh, had a sixty five Mustang as well, which sort of started mm-hmm. the whole kind of Mustang brand. Uh, loving that car. And before I was even old enough to drive, my older brother was also two years older. He and I did a full like show car restoration on a 65 Mustang coupe. You didn't dent his car on a carport, did you? (laughs) No, we didn't. uh, We didn't. 
Um, but I was fortunate enough to build a car like that, restore a car and learn about the history of a car mm. before I was even old enough to get a license to drive that car. So That's awesome. uh, I got my hands dirty on that car before I could uh, get behind the wheel of it. Um, and then we started building a few Fox body Mustangs and doing some engine swaps. And we had an 89 convertible that we changed from an automatic to a manual um, and, you know, played around with that. Made some mistakes along the way, but learned a lot along the way. Mm -hmm. um, uh, Vortex superchargers were Vortex. We, we that's right. Our, yep. Yeah, we, we did a we did an early Vortex on on one of those, um, uh, and then the '93 Cobra came out, and I fell in love with that car, and uh, was you able two to of those buy now? one of those. I, I do, but they're they're not so much. They're, they're, sure, yeah, they're not really. They're both been so modified um, that. Uh, I should get another one that's stock at some point, right? I should get a third one. I, I'm going to write that down. Get third. Cobra. Like that green, <laughs> that, that greenish blue color. Uh, the teal. Yeah. So they only came in the black and the white or some of the black, the red and the, and the teal. Um, I've got a red one. The other car that I'm building was black. It'll end up being white, I think. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'd like to get another one at some point. Maybe just leave it stock. I just don't know if I can leave anything stock. That's my problem. But uh, in 93, got uh, got one. Got a 93 Cobra. Absolutely loved it. Did a few modifications, but nothing really. Like, I was in high school and I was working two jobs. One of them at Pet Boys, you know, trying to make some money and, and get some discounts to get some parts for the thing. And uh, living in South Florida at the time. And then that car got stolen, like in the middle of the night, right from our driveway. It got Ugh. stolen and it got stripped down and they even like cut the unibody in half so they can dump it like in an empty lot. Uh, so uh, that was devastating, having that car taken from me and completely destroyed. I couldn't even buy back the VIN number uh, from the insurance company to rebuild the car. Um, so that car is definitely lost forever. And there's only a handful, you know, less than 5,000. There's only a handful of the Cobras out there. And that one's going to be gone forever because they completely destroyed it. I did try to just find like the VIN number and the, the paperwork and buy the paperwork back from the insurance company like 15 years later. And there's just no good record. So like, no, nah, everything was on paper back then. We don't use paper anymore. And, mm. you know, your insurance agent is dead now. And like, <laughs> you can't even call the guy. Right. It's just like, I was like, you guys don't have anything on this. Like, call them with a Ouija board. Yeah. It's just like, what's, what's going on? They didn't have anything. Cause I would have just built it up from scratch with that VIN number, you know, just done some sort of project with it. And that's kind of when I fell in love with the 93 Cobra. And then I remember sitting in the studio and telling that story with Adam on the air. And I said, hey, it's been 20 years. And we had eBay sponsorship at the time. So like on the show, I was like, hell it, I'm just going to get one. And I just like went on to eBay, found a Cobra. It was super cheap at the time. Uh, had de definitely beat up a little bit. I just bought like the cheapest Cobra on eBay. Honestly, I bought a 93 Cobra with less than 100,000 miles for like seven grand or something like that. Maybe it wasn't even seven grand. In 2020, and, how much uh, is that same car? I, they're, they're probably in the $30,000 range. Yeah. Wow. You know, um, 30,000 doesn't seem like a lot, but it does when you paid seven. Right. right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, 
and uh and just went on there bought one brought it over started doing a project on it and then uh that project was taking a long time so i bought another one i bought the red one i'm like i'm not going to do anything to this car i'm just going to drive this one uh-huh. and then i got it home and after like two weeks of driving actually i didn't even drive it i bought it in arizona my brother was driving it and i said just hold on to it if, you, if anything you think um you know needs a little bit of fixing let me know i'm just you know whatever needs suspension bushings or shocks I go, let's not go crazy with it. And then a couple of weeks later, he's like, there's a vacuum leak. I was like, yeah, that's no problem. Just fix it. And then he's like, vacuum leak. It's not coming from the manifold. It's coming from under the manifold. And then he sends me a picture and the engine's apart. The intake's off. The heads are off the car. You know, uh, uh, the whole thing's apart. I was like, oh, I guess we're doing this now. So, sure. Yeah. It's, yeah. So you well, know, it's he basically apart. had the engine out of the car and then it turned into the red car that I have now that was at SEMA and still isn't done. Um, I guess I'll just go out and buy another one and maybe drive that. I don't know. 30 grand. See what I can find. Matt, I want to thank you for joining the hard parking podcast. People can catch you at Motorator on basically every social media outlet. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. I'm uh, at uh, Motorator. It's just like it sounds. It's M-O-T-O-R-A-T-O-R on all the social media platforms. And there should be links to all the shows and mentions of the shows, car cast and ship this year and all that stuff. In my profiles on those yeah. accounts. So there will be in the uh, the episode description too. And man, what a tag. I wish I had that. Be at the bars. What's up, girl? Call me the motivator. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks. I'll talk to you. Cool. Thanks so much. Yep. Take Bye. care. I want to thank Matt DeAndrea for joining us. You can reach him at motivator. Follow up at chatsy.com. I suggest you go and you check out these movies. I've talked about them. Check out the podcast, Car Cash Show. Check out the uh, Shift and Steer podcast. It's actually um, pretty entertaining. I want to go ahead and thank my sponsors, dressabolts.com, higher quality detail out of Tempe, Arizona, Last Air Brand, Motorsports Clothing, and NSX Channel on Instagram. You can reach us at hardparkingpodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Instagram at NA2NSX or J underscore travels. That's J-H-A-E. Hard Parking Media Facebook, Twitter, Hard Parking Pod. Pick up some merchandise at our Teespring store, Hard Parking Podcast store. Find it on the description of the podcast episode. Till next time, let's do this. Let's grow this thing together.